out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Luton-based band UK Decay, because I recently spoke to two of their members, vocalist, guitarist Steve Abbo Abbott, and also their other guitarist, Steve Spon. So this is the interview. So it's going to be a three-way interview, which is always so much fun. Um, so basically, Abbo is the one who talks first, and Spon talks second. So you're just going to have to work out who's who, actually. Quality-wise, it's pretty damn good, considering. So um, it's via Zoom, but uh, you get the gist. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Abbo... It's over to you. No, just saying, interesting enough, you know, we didn't have a lot, the four in the band, we had a few things that we each liked, but we all had quite different tastes in music. Um, and of course, in those days, there was no such thing as a, having your own sort of uh, wired for sound stereo system. You had to share the the van stereo, the cassette yes. player. <laughs> it used to cause quite a bit of controversy as to who was in charge. Spawn used to do most of the driving, so he, he was... Uh, probably the commander of that cassette recorder um but it was um yeah i think we reggae was the one thing that probably bonded us all together but i'm a huge bowie fan yeah always have been um and you know whereas eddie was more into anything with a heavy bass you know he, he, he could listen to music almost purely listening to the bass lines rather than anything else um and steve harl again you know he was very into Actually, probably similar music to Spawn, I think, in many ways. Um, Spawn, had, you talk about your taste. I remember Spawn was a big fan of, was it MX-80? Oh, yes. MX-80, Parayubu, um, and um, the 13th floor elevator. But, yeah, Bowie as well, of course. I was really regretful that I missed this gig at Dunstable in 1972. I'd seen uh, Hawkwind do the space ritual in Dunstable, and for some reason, two weeks later, I missed David Bowie, who played there. But I didn't know him at the time. But a year later, it was a different matter. Yes, it would have been terrible. So your childhood, did you did you have sort of musical parents or brothers or sisters that gave you a kind of a direction that made you think, God, yes, I love the sound of this. A bit like, you know, like I said, hearing sort of those early glam period, you know, records or things like, you know, the Beatles or something like that. I certainly didn't. Um, <clears throat> no, we didn't redo music at school or anything. Uh, my, my dad sort of liked Paul Ropes and sort of length and sound of music, and my mum was into Tchaikovsky and stuff, but we didn't even have a record player, really. But I had three older sisters who did have record players, um, so I was very much influenced by what they liked. Um, my younger sister, Jill, who unfortunately isn't with us anymore, she used to buy me records that she wanted for my birthday present. Classic. So it'd be, you know, a lot of, uh, let's say, I've still got those, uh, a lot of early reggae singles. Um, you know, we used to have a, a barber's in Dunsborough Road, just up Dunsborough Road in Luton, and they used to cut hair, but also uh, it was a record import shop for stuff coming from Jamaica. People would come back with their suitcases full of records, you know, and we'd stand outside there all day listening to music, blasting out this um, barber's shop. Uh, and, you know, my sister would be flirting with the boys because she was about six seven years older than me and i'll just be there taking it in yes. um 
so it was uh yeah i think you know and i was also a very big motown fan huge motown fan um still am uh i suppose that soul music reggae motown thing luke was very multicultural you know and it is obviously still is and it was a blessing growing up in that environment where there were so many different types of music around you uh, and you know i think even then you sort of chose your tribe you chose the group of people your mates you hung out with and you like the same music you know Yes, absolutely. Um, but, and, and, uh, and, I heard and, Space Oddity was a life changer when I heard that album. Um, you know, that I think, you know, the track, the Bowie tracks I really liked from the early 70s were things like Signet Committee, Unwashed and Somewhat Slightly Dazed, um, Bewley Brothers, um, those tracks with like just almost like a ramble, where he's rambling stream of consciousness ideas. Um, and when I first started to play guitar, when I was like about 16, I, I bought a guitar at 16, couldn't really play it. I tried to play those songs. I realized they were impossible for a beginner. Yes. And you realize actually Bowie was, you know, not just a great wordsmith, um, but he was actually a really good guitarist, very inventive. Um, you know, there's all sorts of fingerings that you could see it on a piece of tablature paper, you know. But you couldn't work out how to get like, you need like eight fingers to sort of get the chord. He was absolutely <laughs> brilliant yes and what about things like memories of a free festival or song for hermione did did those sort of songs resonate at all with you yeah uh free festival less so because i found that a little bit boring but uh um song for hermione is you know um a i've never heard that name and when it appeared in harry potter book i couldn't believe it because I, I didn't i thought it'd been made up you know because we didn't know it had a girlfriend and there's a famous picture of them two together um but i think you know, like the poetry, the hand that wrote this letter sweeps a pillow clean, you know, uh, they're magical words. I didn't really properly understand them at, you know, sort of 10 or 12 years old, but I knew they were magical. And, you know, it's one of those things that really, probably along with reading Dylan Thomas uh, at school um, under Miltwood, really introduced me to the world of poetry and lyrics. And I think I'd probably credit a song like that, four or five songs like that, that sort of put the idea that you can you know, use poetry to talk about real life things because obviously she existed and it's a, it's a beautiful, poignant love song. Yes, even absolutely. It, yes, absolutely. And it has even more poignancy. Did you, when you got to 16, did you leave school at that stage or did you go on for A-levels? I went for A-levels. Uh, I went to Luton Sixth Form College. Uh, there wasn't really any jobs around. So it was a way of extending that sort of um, existence. I, I can't say I really studied. I got a D and an E. So, uh, but as Bon will tell you, the school I went to, I went to a very rough school called Rotherham High School. It's been knocked down now, Rotherham in Luton. Um, and it wasn't about studying. It was really just getting through the five years of of whatever, you know, bullying or, uh, you know, sports and stuff. Um, but those lessons that that taught me, um, you know, probably more better life lessons I would have ever learned from a teacher, you know, in an academic situation. And it gives you a noose. And I think, you know, one of the things as a band that we had, because we hadn't come from that, from a privileged world or even art school, was that we were very in touch with the real world. So, you know, the songs hopefully had something that reflected those times rather than were out the sort of the books of Asimov or J.G. Ballard or, or even, you know, Lord of the Rings. Yes. Well, yeah, we don't want, yes, the, the world of, did things like prog rock enter, enter Fulham at all? Um, Luton, sorry. Um, yes. Did, yeah, did, very much so. 
Did, did, did the work of so. Yes and Genesis and Rick Wakeman and Barclay James Harvest, did that sort of slip into your consciousness? Yeah. But again, you know, I had three older sisters and we'll come to Spawn in a minute because I'm hogging the mic. But um, <laughs> right. my, older sister, my older sister was a big prog rock fan and I saw most of those bands. I never saw Yes. Um, but Bartley James Harvest album, once again, is still one of my favourite albums of all time. And there's a beautiful love song on it called Galadriel. Uh, again, when I heard that name in Lord of the Rings, the film, I was watching that. It's like, ah, oh, one of those names. I suppose they were from a different class of where we came from. But um, I mean, once again, I think it's brilliant. Norman Smith's string arrangements, incredible. Um, and what I like about Bartley James Harvest, because when the punk thing came along, yeah, I'd hate Bartley James Harvest. And I love the idea of being contrary and saying, no, actually, I think they're really good. I probably didn't say it in interviews. <laughs> I said it, <laughs> I said it to, to, to you know, people asking. And, you know, I'm still a Pink Floyd fan. Well, not still a Pink Floyd fan. They finished for me at Wish You Were Here. It was the last album. But, you know, all this craziness about I only like Sid Barrett in Pink Floyd type of thing. It's rubbish. You know, the first album was great. But so were, you know, so is Metal. So is Dark Side of the Moon. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, in fact, I listened to there's a live in Oakland bootleg of Pink Floyd that's so aggressive, so full of of sort of angst about the world that you know I, I think I don't I don't like them as personalities. What I read about them, but I think again the clash of personalities, even though they were sort of pretty well all well to do toffs, um, created something quite special musically and met the message of was obviously Roger Waters, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, so prog rock came, but it didn't really touch our lives. You know, we listened to it because it was around, but I don't yeah. think it it got to the heart like Catch a Fire or Burning, the Bob Marley albums did, or Natty Dread. I mean, they were incredible, or the Norman Whitfield stuff, the Temptations masterpiece, or you know, the Four Tops. I think Levi Stubbs is one of the greatest singers of all time, but of course, he didn't write the words, so he's not considered, you know, someone that you take seriously. But you take Roger Daltrey seriously, you know, whereas Pete Townsend wrote every word he uttered, you know. Yes. Um, you know, sometimes it's better not to know what happened behind the music. It's better just to listen to it for face value and not know the machinations of what created it, you know. Well, I suppose one of my first sort of loves, well, you know, apart from that glam period, was people like the Carpenters and Karen Carpenter's voice mm. and the lyrics and realising she didn't probably write the, long, the songs, but... The, the mm. sentiment behind them were truly heartbreaking when you listen to them as a 10-year-old. And even now, you just think, my God, that's just poetry, really, isn't it? So, Yeah, so. they never t- they never touched me, but I do like um, I'm on the top of the world. Look, it was When I was living in America, it was one of those tracks I heard probably shopping in Kmart or something. And it came on, I thought, you know what? That's a really good song. And it's a feel, it, is a, it feels, feels good. You know, it's like you wouldn't imagine them because like you say, they were so maudlin and so depressing in <laughs> their lyrics, or lovely if you look at it for a different section, a different way. But that song had quite a bit of uh, spunk in it. It was quite a bit of get up and go. And what was your Anyways, love? Of, and what was your love of football by the, this stage in the seventies? The, uh, the, the... It was it was Luton Town. Yeah, my dad was a West Ham fan, and you know I grew up in Luton on the Farleyal Estate, and uh, he took me to see Luton when I was four. So, you know, it's whatever, 58 years on, I'm, we're playing West Ham tomorrow, you know, and I've been supporting them for 58 years. And I love Luton Town. I mean, I was just talking to a school friend of mine. Uh, they're, they're sort of the most important thing in our lives, I think. And they have been forever, you know, family. I, I like to say family accepted. Um, close family accepted. But, you know, <laughs> football is, is football is the most important thing. Luton Town Football Club, you know, not... 
not football and FIFA and World Cups and England and all that rubbish, but just when you have when you have something that that is so within you, you know, I hate flags, I hate nationalism, but I love Luton. There you go. What was the? I was just talking to Spawn before you came on about the the plastic pitch years. When was that, by the way? Uh, that was in after the Millwall riot, so that would have been in the eighties. Right, um, the very big bouncy the, ball. Yeah, yeah. Well, we liked it because we were very good on it. <laughs> so uh, we didn't we didn't complain, you know. And uh, we've always been the the I suppose the runt in the pack, you know, as we are now in the Premiership, the one that everyone hates because you know they don't realise they should love them because of our ground and history and it's owned by fans and stuff, you know. But there's a resentment about Luton as a town, let alone a football club, isn't there, Spawn? Yes, there absolutely is. Um, I'm forever uh, defending Luton. Okay, <laughs> but the, the Tate brothers, one of the Tate brothers, did a YouTube video recently about Luton and saying failed state and uh, walking through the Arndale and pointing out what rubbish it all is. Well, there are problems in Luton, but there are problems in lots of towns as well. So, uh, you know, to actually this Luton uh, without really good explanation. I mean, the whole country, in a sense, could be argued is a failed state at the moment. Mm. We could re- really do with, um, well, I don't know, but getting out over this horrible period of time. Uh, of, um, what would you call it? It's um, culture wars, and, you know, polarisation. Um, I've never known it so divisive. Uh, so with, with Luton, it is changing. It's a, people often say Luton is a, uh, a port. Well, it's where people come into the country for the first time and they stop off and move elsewhere. But my family moved down from Merseyside originally, but lots of families moved in from all different parts of the world. And it truly is a multicultural town. Um, and... You know, the advantages of all these different races of people, it's very similar to London, really, with lots of different cultures of people mingling and stuff. Um, I did pop into Luton. I put a toe back into Luton a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> which is the first time for three yeah, years. I mean, God, your heart must have been aching. But I think yeah. there's something, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, we toured America. I mean, we were still quite young, uh, very young when we toured the West Coast. Um, and you know, it was a bit like, I suppose I haven't, we haven't heard the Clash song, I'm Support the USA, we were ready to be incredibly cynical. But we yes. weren't really that tight. You know, we were very much, um, to use the Bowie analogy, we were sort of the fly in the milk. So it was all alien to us, but we were trying to swim. Um, and, you know, it wasn't so long after the Vietnam War, it was five, six years after the Vietnam War had finished, so there was a lot of people missing limbs on the streets and a lot of poverty around, you know. Um, and it's interesting talking to, we did quite a few interviews and I remember what kept coming up was the class system in Britain. I didn't, they realise we were from the lower classes. They just presumed that everyone was from the upper class and wanted to talk about it. And I've never had a problem with the class thing. You know, I don't, I've got friends who went to Eton. I actually represent people that went to Eton. Um, you know, it's a great education if you get the chance, but of course most people don't get the chance. And, you know, what I came to realise was it's sort of, you know, Americans think of, poverty is a sort of personal failing rather than a social condition and they conversely sort of conflate wealth with intelligence and capability 
But then when I came back to Britain, it became totally apparent, you know, being in the early our early twenties, that Britain does as well. We just have a we have the same metric, albeit one is you're born into it here, so you have an advantage. In America, you know, it's earned or mostly handed down to you from your parents. And this horrible idea that the metric of success is what your wealth is is one of the whole things that's driven this crazy commercialism in Britain, um, where you know things are valued because what they seem to be worth rather than what their real emotional worth is. You know, um, and it, it's driving a lot of the I think isolation of of good intent in this country um, because it is all about the money, and it and it still is. Um, so I think we have more in common with America. America has more in common with us, and probably why we make good bed partners, aside from the being in the, in the Anglosphere. Whereas you go to New Zealand, Australia, actually you get laughed at if you wear anything that's a bit sort of uh, um, ostentatious or show-offy. Um, in fact, there was a moment in Luton when we had quite a few bag snatches. Um, when I was I was working with with Luton um, Culture, which is the sort of the art scene in Luton, the funded art scene. And it was interesting because we met one of the cultural, one of the leaders of um, what was seen as the, <laughs> the national group that was um, doing this bag snatching over, over this crazy week of bags. And he said, look, you know, in my country, you don't wear your wealth like uh, as a boast, as a sort of a status. You actually hide it in your house. So you imagine you get, as Bond says, you come into the country like this, Star Trek like teleport brings you to Luton Airport. You haven't got any family with you. You're here just to earn money. You're told this is the milk of the land of milk and honey. There aren't the jobs in Luton. So you've sort of landed crime being an easy route. And the shock of people wearing a little handbag, you know, that's got all their credit cards, their money, <laughs> you know, their keys to the car. It's just beyond them. They just couldn't understand that. Why would you have it all on you and carry it everywhere with you, you know? And it was an interesting cultural exchange because, you know, I think we learn quite quickly in Luton when you're younger, um, when you're surrounded by people, different cultures that, that, you know, different cultures have different rules and, and, you know, different normals. And one of the biggest problems, of course, is those rules and normals become divisive in the wrong hands rather than being something that's, is of interest. God, isn't it interesting that, you know, uh, uh, you know, a certain type of the fish head is exotic in this country when we actually bin our fish head, you know, or, you know, I remember going to see Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, the Kuali singer. He played yes. in Luton at the rec centre when I was about 15, 16, but mate Fahim, we went to see him. And God, I, was, I felt so alien in that room, but absolutely loved the ecstasy of, of the show. It's incredible. Went on for three hours. And it, you know, it was, I learned a lot from it. I mean, I was still in just about to, uh, to, come into UKDK the whole evening the, it's sort of crescendo up and up and up and it can't go any higher up and up and up and of course part of that was the the, the the cultural experience of seeing something so different to what I was used to um that I found it really exciting whereas of course with you know the the, the problems we have are more built on the fact that people say it's threatening they don't see the excitement of it um anyway Yes, no, absolutely. No, that was a long answer to a short question, as they say. <laughs> I, was, I was very excited with Nusrat Fatiani Khan and Musta Musta, but um, yes. yeah, Musta Musta. And then, of course, when I worked with Jeff Buckley, you know, we did we traveled a lot around in the car, just myself and him and his guitar when we were touring the UK. And he loved Nusrat, 
And he learnt it by rote, Jeff. He could sing Musty Musty, beginning to end. He didn't know what the hell it meant. Pre-internet, of course, you know. Yes. But you realise, actually, the text was music in itself. The way you would hum a tune, he'd learnt every intonation of like the voice and and obviously the text. And to me, you know, Nusrat is exactly you. It's Musty Musty, you know. But, uh, yeah. Yes, amazing. So look, as as we trundle through the the seventies, getting towards seventy nine, when what well, what's your musical moment actually that you first get into a band? What's the first band that you form and uh, start to develop as a musician? Well, Spawn was ahead of me. Yeah, I well, I kind of um, embarked on a, a catering career to start with. So I I learned how to be a chef and uh, make a bloody good curry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's actually French cuisine. I, I, I really wish we'd have learned more about Asian cook, culinary cooking and stuff. It would have suited me better, actually. But um, after two or three years of it, I um, got, well, I found out it wasn't really my deal. It was sort of the amount of hours that you might have to work at catering. You know, you'd work in the mornings finish about three o'clock and then go back to six o'clock and work in the evenings until midnight and usually on friday and saturday night at the weekends and stuff and of course that didn't really matter it wasn't a good mix and match for 17 18 year olds so uh eventually i got to a point where i started going to uh concerts at the california ballroom and at the queensway and dunstable which were two local events to ours california ballroom was um legendary and you know, the fact that if you took away all the bands that actually played there during the 60s and 70s there'd be no music scene left probably the rolling stones pink floyd but all the tamla motown bands mm. and soul bands they all played there and the um the more progressive rock bands played at the queensway hall you know the curved airs and the the scrubs and the uh, david bowie played there hawkwind would play there regularly uh, I can't, you know, there's a whole list of bands that played there. But that coming into the later 70s, bands like the Stranglers and um, Sex Pistols played the um, Queensway Hall in Dunstall. I was there when the Sex Pistols played with the jam supporting and there was 18 people in the audience and a venue that held 1,800 people. But it was a seed of something that was different. I'd been to see Pink Floyd, which I really loved at the... Um, mega concert of Nebworth in 1975 and it was so utterly huge <laughs> and the fences got torn down and people broke in and there was a big stink going on because at the back of the auditorium the uh, toilets had overflowed and started seeping down the hill and gradually waves of people were moving out of the way of the sludge <laughs> but they played and uh they played the whole album and then they played Wish You Were Here. Was that the second the one following it up? After Dark Side, that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they played those two albums and um, it was like, my God, where can anything go that, above this? Because they had uh, massive fireworks, they had quadraponic sounds and lights. It was just so over the top. It was something like 250,000 people had turned up there and there was only supposed to be 100,000. Um, but it was also uh, a watershed moment because it's like 
they can't carry on like this. All the bands were trying to outdo themselves with big shows, you know, with lights and, you know, the next lot that came on was Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and they were trying to outdo each other. So something had to give and then, uh, of course, it went right back down to the street with punk rock and uh, that punk rock showed that it was possible for ordinary people to get back involved in music again so we could seize our moment and join a punk rock band um, yes. which is what they did probably in 1977 I joined a band called Chaos I was I flirted with a band called Toad the Wet Sprocket for a little while and they were blues um, but then uh, Chaos was more like uh, we played with Sham 69 and that was a dreadful gig in Perry St. Evans but something I had to give we started building um a rehearsal room in the basement at the end of 1978 in uh, Wellington Street. And um, so we had an operation centre together to um, so bands could rehearse. So this is what was about that time at the end of 78, early 79, that we met you guys and um, other bands rehearsed in the basement, basically. So was it two bands that came together to form UKDK? Well, um, essentially, uh, there was the Resistors and there was Snow White. And I was in a band called Snow White with Gaynor and uh, Steve Voice and people. Abbo was with, uh, you joined the Resistors with Martin and uh, Steve Hull. And early 1979, the lineups changed and coalesced into UK Decay and Newmania. And we teamed up together and pulled our resources and between us we managed to be able to uh, afford to put a, a thousand run copy of what we called a split single and you know <laughs> that's where we took it off from there we we had people on uh, mopeds going around helping us to deliver the records to the local music shops in the local towns and we, we Abbo would nip off to London and take boxes of the records down to rough trade and various markets, street markets and things. Um, really, it was just getting the record out to people. We, we sent the record off to the New Musical Express and to find out a week or two later, Charles Charles Murray and Danny Baker had slated it as being the search for the world's worst punk band has now ended. <laughs> <laughs> that, that meant that from that point on the rough trader on the phone to us saying can we have more copies of your record it's sold out but then we were we we're one of, as a small label we we had a we couldn't just ask for another thousand copies of the record we had to pay for them as well but all our money was out on that first so we we had hiccups like that which is a bit of a shame but we eventually got it out again and the notoriety and the fact that we were going out getting gigs from outside of town and that for rather than just settling for being a local band. Yes. We're able to uh, spread our wings, basically. Is that about a right approximation? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. I think we sort of stumbled into it. There was never a plan. Like, I mean, it's sort of, you know, I suppose we all strive in life to sort of improve the hand you're dealt with at birth. And there's people that plan things and sort of aspire to things. But I don't think any of us did, you know. Um, you know, it, it, not that I ever felt that the sort of coincidence of birth should be translated into some kind of moral responsibility to 
you know, follow on with what your parents did or, you know, uh, do a job that earn the most money and contribute to society. We, we didn't really think about that. I think, you know, we, I suppose we just, my, my personal aspiration was to try and grow into a, an extremely well-educated, uneducated teenager, you know, <laughs> by reading a lot, but it's, um, but I say there was no sort of line of ambition. We just sort of fell into it. And I think, you know, punk was giving people more options as to what you wanted to be for the first time. So, you know, that signal uh, came through to us hard and fast, but not really as a as a way to get rich, but as a way to perhaps tell your story or a commonality, find a commonality with other people in your situation, um, or even to fight against the things you didn't like, like racism and sexism and things that, you know, we were lucky that uh, we lived in a sort of a universe where they just didn't make sense because your friends were from all different places. So mm. it, it uh, the blueprint of the sort of the right wing thoughts just, just didn't work. So, you know, so the point I'm trying to make is we literally, you know, we knew Spawn. Um, I ended up in a band because I bought guitar off someone um, and he was the guitarist of the band. So we didn't have a guitar. So I had a guitar. So I had his guitar for 15 quid, a lovely Woolworths guitar, which I've got next door, actually. I've just found it. Um, and, you know, then the singer didn't turn up one gig, so I started singing. Um, it very soon became clear after four or five gigs, whilst we were filling local venues of like, you know, two or 300 people, that I was a crap guitarist. Uh, Spawn was in Numania, a band that we were playing with. So Spawn sort of stepped over to our world, uh, our band. And, you know, then we just started putting singles out. And I think that that just just happened in such a natural process that it was it probably was our undoing at one point because the business side of things was so poorly done. Um, but the upside is it was quite innocent. You know, there was no there was no need to. You know, I don't know, there was sort of a punk thing of that era. It was sort of just after the the clash and the damned and the jam and stranglers and you sort of had the stranglers on one side that were unauthentic and you had the clash who were totally authentic and then you had the jam that sort of floated in the middle a lot of it was about authenticity but you know i think you know being authentic means you already know you can't be taught authenticity it's there it's not and we were authentic i think because we came from a place where a lot of the reasons that people wanted to make music or did try and be in band stuff, it wasn't really ever on a high horizon as an option. That wasn't why you did it. Um, and it sort of entirely missed the point. Um, people like the people that reviewed the early singles of us and many other acts, because they were, they were, well, you can't, you weren't there in 1976, you know, so how, what, why we need to listen to you? Well, in 1976, we were 14 or 15 years old. So <laughs> we didn't have a voice, you know? Yeah. Um, uh anyway so and we sort you... of we stumbled into it really i think yeah we stumbled and... into being a full-time band so with that period i mean 79 you know margaret thatcher gets in so we have thatcherism for the next you know 80s 10 years and then there's the falkland war then there's the the you know the miners strike there's greenham common there's a huge amount of unemployment so how do you navigate that period because you've had the punk then there's that post-punk world of mm. quite scratchy and interesting bands and then there's the sort of the blitz kids and new romantic stuff's happening there's going to be a few more years before bands like the smiths appear in 83 with that kind of indie sound so you're you're kind of at the cusp of this kind of new decade and and sort of 
yeah, a lot of punk bands had already got really fed up with punk when they started in originally because people started to all look like Sid Vicious. They thought, well, that's not mm-hmm. what I've got into punk for. So what was it like trying to be in a band in the early 80s? It was confused, I think, because there wasn't really uniform, you know, like there was in 76, 77. And that uniform was probably the people standing there on the Bill Grundy show from Johnny Rotten through to Susie Sue. By the early 80s, uh, you also had bands like The Fall. Um, certainly didn't have a uniform. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what, you know, there was no, like I say, this is the, the whole thing about authenticity. Nothing, you know, some people didn't premeditate things. There was no, this is what we wanted to look like because it's going to make it successful. Um, obviously, the punk influence was heavy with the spiky hair and sort of the clothes you wore and the ex-army fatigues. Although, to be honest, the ex-army fatigues were very cheap. I mean, they were literally sort of 50, <laughs> 50 p or a quid for a pair of trousers, you know. Um, and, you know, to quote Joe Strummer, um, you know, turn rebellion into money, I felt a lot of a lot less of that was going on in the early 80s. And it did feel like a, a new epoch because we were a lot younger than those bands that come before us. Um, you know, they tended to be sort of 20, 25, 30, you know. We were doing this at like 16, 17 and 18. And there's a big difference in those few years. You know, you do wear your heroes on your sleeve when you're younger. But I don't think we really did. Um, and I could talk about quite a few we were more interested, I think, in you know trying to um, trying to tell the story of the world as we would like it, you know, without any great expectations it would ever change. But Spawn will tell you, we found more and more people that come into our gigs that shared our views, and I don't think they were coming because they shared our views originally. I think it was hopefully because of the sort of community that we built around us and other bands that did stand out because they wouldn't they would stand up against racism or bigotry or sexism or a lot of the other evils of the era that were totally accepted and what people forget about Thatcher and the Falklands was when she went to the Falklands war and did the whole country was supporting her mm. it was incredible yes. i mean you look at it now with all the stories about you know um commonwealth and slave trade and you know um cultural appropriations and stuff and there's no way britain should own the falkland islands we knew that <laughs> um and we were very young but it was really fighting against the the crowd and you know the lazy racism in everyday conversation or even tv the tv programs i know now they're being picked apart the big problem for me was the racist family in love their neighbor called the abbott family so i'm like i sat watching my dad and and you know it's a simple working class guy he knew it was wrong my mum knew it was wrong i knew it was wrong but if you didn't join in a laugh, you were sort of on the other side of the fence of the majority. So it really was a, there was a huge gulf. Uh, and, and we had a lot of problems at our concerts with people, right wing people turning up and just wanting to beat us up, basically. And again, we didn't premeditate that. We, we didn't go out there to go around the country having fights. We wanted to play music. But our views were you know, so contrary to the to, to what the mainstream was, you found out you were in an absolute minority. And like I was saying, what was great about the punk rock thing was that immediacy of expression. We didn't have to go to art college to create a piece of art. We didn't have to go to a music conservatoire to compose music. We just did it. 
And so our views sort of was, you know, processed in a very short time. It wasn't like the, you know, the, the gestation period and then like, you know, the, the big construction and then sort of releasing it to the world. Like we'd written a novel or something. Mm. You write a song and you're playing it that night. And that was the beauty of it. We didn't realize at the time, but that was uh, the simplicity. And, um, you know, I remember the clash seemed to put out a single every month. There was one period where they're pumping them out. And it was White Man House with Pally, Clash at Your Rockers, you know, Remote Control, um, uh, 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 English Civil War, you know. Um, they were substantial statements and they were just pumped out. Boom, 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 boom. But then, and, then, it, yeah. and then kind of early on, you know, in your, in your um, you know, the life of the band, um, you get a John Peel session. I mean, the gatekeepers are huge at mm. this point, aren't they? You, you know, every town and village, no, every town and city has an indie punk night. There's the three weekly music papers and record mirror and then the John Peel show and possibly Kid Jensen, and Janice Long. I mean, mm. that must have been an absolutely amazing moment to get the call to say, do you want to do a session? Yeah. Was it John Walters rang you, Spawn? Spawn was the only one who had a phone because my family <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have a phone. <laughs> so I think Spawn got the call from John Walters saying, like, yeah. uh, John Peel wants you to come in for a session. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I dare say we sent the record off one of our records off to him, and then I think, mm. please, John Peel, could we have a session, please? Yeah, yeah. I think it was a yeah <laughs> uh, one of the millions, you know. Yeah, but, you know. But and with association with Graham Bentley from Northampton. He put us in at the Nags Head in Williston quite early. And oh, yeah. And that was one of the key secret venues that John Peel would play. It was his mate, Big Bob of Nags Head. And he would, well, was it once a month or something like that? He would uh, mm. walk there for a few pints, he'd spin a few records and watch the band that's playing. And they would try and get a band in that he might be interested in doing a session with. And uh, so after we did the gigs with in Northampton and in Luton of the one you put on Arbo at the Tech College, do you remember that one? Mm. With the yeah, yeah. Flowers? Yeah. Uh, word went down. Graham Bentley said to us, "We'll see if we can get you a gig up at the um, Nags Head," and it came to pass. We that was in Wollaston. It's still there, but it's changed its name now. Um, and we uh, we had this gig with John Peel. Uh, playing and uh, we turned up and that and of course John Peel was there and we had lots of words with him and said I'm here to see you but I can't guarantee anything I have to have a word with my producer uh, and we said to him afterwards well what did you think he goes oh I really enjoyed it but it's not up to me it's up to John Walters and then sure enough with the phone numbers and then a week or two later I got a phone call from John Walters and said right we would you be interested in doing a John Peel said, of course <laughs> So within a few weeks, we were uh, made available in London doing the uh, session, and it was uh, marvelous at the time, wasn't it? You know. We... Yeah, yeah. Well, we the shocking thing for us was we had a free lunch out of it. You know, it was sausage, <laughs> egg, chips, and beans as much as you could eat. <laughs> it was like, well, and when you're on the road, that that was a real pleasure. Um, but John, we did two sessions with him, and and he was very supportive. And when we released yeah. uh, Werewolf, which is our final single, he played it every night. And he started the show with it. It was like 11 minutes long. And, it, it, you know, in those days, we'd listen to John Peel. It was our big sort of um, want of discovering new music. And I can't remember where. I should remember. It's one of those things you remember where you were. But anyway, it was on. 
um, I turned the John Peel show on. It started of heavy, heavy, heavy breathing. And it just came on. It was like, oh, my God, he's playing it. And he played the whole 10 minutes. And then he played again the next night. It was like he was such a great supporter um, of, of not just us, but a lot of people like us that were so disenfranchised from the NME covers or, you know, Melody Maker. You know, we rarely had a word written about us that wasn't an absolute um, slagging off because um, we probably just, just misunderstood or we didn't fit a fashionable trend of the moment. Um, yes. Then everything changed. Everything changed, and suddenly, you know, we had journalists falling over to sort of write about you, and you know, venues were filling up and things. And we had a lot of bands coming through that we'd met around on our travels that um, played with us, and the community grew so rapidly. Um, I'm talking about probably France, Germany as well, you know, and Holland, Belgium. Um, it all changed overnight. Like someone put a switch and the light went on. It's like, oh, actually, what they're doing is all right. <laughs> Until then, we'd been a joke to the majority of journalists and most game changers. Apart from the reason I mentioned that, because John Peel was the exception, and Steve Keaton and two or three other journalists, Johnny Waller. Um, yeah, they were different. They were different um, people. They didn't look at it as uh, as you know, where do we fit into the trend? Yes. And to answer your question, which we're really failing to do tonight, I must say, <laughs> ten minutes into the answer. Um, that new romantic thing was going on when we were going, you know, Spandau Valley and all that were kicking off Visage. Um, uh, and, you know, I met a lot of them because I was living in Brixton, hanging out in clubs after gigs, Rusty Egan and all that, you know, Steve Strange. I got to know them people uh, and, and they, you know, they were very friendly and very supportive, I must say, even though they lived in a totally different world. And, you know, I was wearing army fatigues and they were wearing, you know, their grandma's um, lace dress, you know, and tons of makeup. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it was tribal, more tribal than it is nowadays, I think. But um, yeah, the tribe sort of coexisted. I don't think it's ever really competitive. And a lot, yeah. of course, a lot of the people in the new romantic world had come from the punk sort of background, uh, music background. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, the Bowie thing, you know, the Bowie thing hung over punk and he hung over new romantics even more, of course, you know. And even, of course, he hung over the electronic scene that came after us all, you know, the whole Berlin techno through to everything else because of the B-sides of Hero and Low. Um, and, yeah, I think I think we were all informed by Bowie, but I don't think he could be an influence because he was so far beyond us musically and lyrically <laughs> and everything else. Yes. Uh, and, so, of course, he did stylize things. He did He did have a, a template, albeit he smashed it two years later and formed another template. But, anyway. Yes, that's true. So Fresh Records, why did you sign for Fresh? Well, they had a market stall. Alex Howard, a market stall in Soho Market. And I was down there in late 76. But there was a really good reggae shop. Um, there was a Joe Gibbs, 12 inches we were after. that. I went down with a couple of mates from Luton. And um, uh, there was a, a record stall playing sort of, records and i can't remember what records they were because i didn't know the music but the jam sat up and played a gig there so the three of them were playing in this market it was called soho market i'm trying to it was sort of well obviously it was in soho <laughs> it <was> somewhere <laughs> at the bottom of wardour street somewhere between wardour street and charing cross i wonder where it was because there must be a new building there or something but soho market was a buzzy sort of market with selling alternative clothes and stuff probably from the hippie era um and, I, you know, I, we just caught two songs of the jam, and I was absolutely blown away by it. Anyway, I got chatting to the guy there, 
and then move on like whatever uh two and a half years um and somehow they came back into our life again um how did it happen spawn i can't remember they they spotted us i think because we were getting played oh i'll tell you why because we were selling they were a distribution company so yeah. from his market stall being on the cutting edge of punk he was there when everyone was releasing their red vinyl and seven inches and a thousand of this a thousand of that acts like the drones and and um someone in the nosebleeds can't remember who it was um slaughtering the dogs buzzcocks so they then started to buy these records and distribute them so we took our first single to them because they're one of the distributors in london and they sold quite a few of them and then we took the black cat single and the black cat single we were selling four or five hundred a week so they the obvious thing for them was to say you know what we'd like to put a single out by you so they asked us to go and record a single they hadn't heard the music and we recorded uh, For My Country and Unwind. That was yes. the third single. That was the first single for them. And they put that out, of course. That that went like hotcakes. Um, so we did an unexpected guest with them, the next single. And then before we went to America, we we supported the Dead Kennedys over there. That was the reason we went. We recorded a few tracks with John Loder in some of the studios, the studio recording in. Um, we went to America. Like I say, America for me was a real game changer for lyrics and things because um well everything about america i was desperate to come home we were there like four or five weeks but you know again soaked it all up and like i say trying to be that um educated uneducated sort of uh teenager you know i was reading so much with mixing with vietnam vets ex-cia people in interviews and stuff obviously jella biafra is quite a character to be around for for a while uh we played with johnny thunders did you, flag, um, did you meet a guy who was their roadie called Patrick O'Neill at that stage? Dead Kennedys? Yeah, Patrick. He, 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 he did a book last year that I interviewed him for, and it was, you know, he was part yeah. of the Dead Kennedys. And he remember he, he roadied for the for Zans. Zans, that's it. Oh, yeah, it? yeah. And, well, um, we, we, met, we met then. Um, did we, do you remember him, Spawn? No, I don't know. Well, let's see. No, I don't know. Not off the top of my head. Uh, yeah. Peter O'Neill, did you say his name? Patrick right? O'Neill. Patrick O'Neill. Yes. Oh, the name strikes a bell, but... It does, isn't it? Yeah. I can't... It's a long time ago. I really can't... I'll, I'll think about it and get back to you. Yes. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. No, we met a lot of people on that tour. Uh, yeah, we, we did. Met, um, What's her name? Cynthia Plastercaster. Oh, nice. <laughs> there you go. De- God, that must designs have... on, on my part. So I didn't, I was scared stiff. I ran out the minute. That was at the Mowbray Gardens in San Francisco. Um, uh, yeah, we met a lot of people on that tour, um, but came back with lots of ideas. We came back and finished The Man and Only, the album, which Fresh released. Unfortunately, um, they, they sold about 30 or 35,000 the first week since Bonus in A lot of records went out and then they repressed it and then it went bankrupt. Yep. So we lost probably, jeez, uh, um, yeah, we lost probably 50, 60 grand um, that they owed us. Um, and that was the biggest setback we ever had. But yep. the good thing was John Loder, who uh, was starting to produce us and ran Southern Studios, and he also produced Crass and Poison Girls and acts like that. Um, uh, and he went on to produce... Um, a lot of the discord bands yeah he was with us so he was bright john and he was like in his probably late 30s he was a real grown-up 
he managed to use that bankruptcy to get our rights back to, for Man and Only. So we got the rights back to all of our records from Fresh, but we had no money. <laughs> and he lent us the money to press them and put them out. Uh, and so we we should have died at that point. This is very similar to the Luton football story, but don't start me on that. We'll be here all night. Um, <laughs> we got to the point where we were absolutely dead, but we actually reborn at that moment because we re-owned all of it. And we always owned all of our rights. We still own all of our rights between us. Um, and and that was a that allowed us to do whatever we wanted to do with it, which is great. But it left us in poverty, so we had to go back on the road again uh, another couple of years. Um, yeah. But I don't. I, I don't look on it as, as a. I say we weren't in it for the business. We just yes. wanted our bag of chips and get to the next show. So absolutely um, at that age. So one one track on that album, Dorian. Can you remember how that song comes yeah. together? Because it's quite yeah. an amazing track. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably a Barclay James Arvis kicking in. No, no, no. I didn't say it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was I was reading books like The Going Out of Fashion, and you know, um, Herman Hesse. Uh, was, you know, I was reading his books, Oscar Wilde, um, uh, Nietzsche, you know, I've never really liked. But, yeah, I was sucking all this stuff up. Thomas Mann, apart from Magic Mountain, which I think is one of the most overrated books of all time. And obviously I've read a picture of Dorian Gray. And what amazed me, there was this, this, this cartoon world we were living in where you'd see Thatcher giving this heart-rendering speech we must take this country and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, this is absolute rubbish. Saw straight through it. This is absolute, this is a Dorian Gray moment. You know, she's coming out with all this stuff as if it was sincerity, but actually it's absolute bullshit. You know, this is a whole separate face to the face that's really, you know, enacting all these views and theories about how to, you know, what we should be doing with our lives, you know? So, yeah, we were just in there, Spawn had written that lovely piano thing. Yes. Eddie did the bass thing. Uh, was it Eddie or was it? I can't. I can't remember. Creep and Chaos. Well, I can't remember Eddie or or the American fifteen-year-old. Yeah, it was Creeping, but Eddie it was came along and yeah. started bass out. Creeping laid down the initial part. He was only over here for about a, a month, six weeks or so. I had to go back because work permits and things. He was only fifteen, wasn't he? I don't think he had a work yeah. permit, but I shouldn't say that. Anyway, he so, said yeah, so. So as would as would happen, you know, Spawn had written that back in track, uh, and I had this sort of current thoughts on Thatcher, um, and that song just it was in two takes, just sang it, you know, scraps and notes of paper, uh, modern day Dorian Gray, um, and uh, yeah, it was as simple as that really. But it was very much about Thatcher, uh, sit pretty in your place, abandon all loyalties for misery, insincerity, and disgrace. Oh, Teenage lyrics. Teenage lyrics. Excellent. But, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things. It, I was thinking about this recently. Um, uh, I was just, just uh, on holiday in Mallorca and the guy we went to visit died while we were there. Um, uh, 67 or something. And and I was just thinking about all the things that have happened in the past and, and all this, obviously it's corny, how fleeting life is and everything. But it's quite strange that you can look back at moments like we're talking about now. And it, you know, the person then and the person we are now, there's hardly anything that unites us, you know. We're, we're, we're leading different lives, different loves, different dreams. Um, it's almost like like the, the most cells in our bodies are sort of striding down a different place. We're different cells to the people we were then, you know. Um, and 
that era to me was quite strange because we were so young um, that nothing, like say, nothing was premeditated. It just came out. Whereas now, if we try and do something, you know, we overthink it. Um, so a lot of the, lot of the, and I think this is why people like the Paul McCartney's or Stevie Wonder's can't write great songs when they get past a certain period in their life because they've lost that spontaneity. You know, a, a, you're not getting exposed to the life that probably inspired you. Living for the city wouldn't be written now because he doesn't know what the hell goes on the city. Uh, Stevie Wonder's no stories coming his way. You know, Paul McCartney has forgotten about how simple love is because it's so long ago that he had that sort of all-encompassing love moment, you know, um, where you can think of anything else if you're lucky to ever find it. Um, so it's quite weird talking about that era because I do feel like we're talking about different people. Yes. But then it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because some of those lyrics that people wrote, and I'm obviously I was a massive Smiths fan, they were such memorable lyrics, but now I listen to the lyrics being written by the same person and they're just like mm. quite clunky and there's not that. Yeah. And I often wonder what what it is that makes that lyric now just like that's just a bit clunky and I forget where was that lyric back in the sort of 80s, possibly early 90s. Mm. You can still remember them. It's beautiful. They, yeah, yeah. And, they had a beauty but, to them, didn't they? But there's yeah. there's some there's some I don't know I often think it's like the planets line up and if you're lucky it might just happen and then it's gone unless you're David yeah. Bowie where you suddenly can find another bit of inspiration and the planets line up again but it's it's a different one but with your band you'd obviously started changing lineups a bit you'd you'd lost a few members you'd gained a few members at this stage hadn't you well we never fired anybody they sort of the apples fell off the tree a first base player Segovia. He, we were going to America and his girlfriend wouldn't let him come. And we were sitting there the day before we're leaving for America. And he said, James, Jane won't let me go. And we're like, you've got to be joking. So, so we rang up the dead Kenny's manager and said, there's only three of us coming. We need to find a bass player. And she said, I know the perfect guy. And then when we rocked up, he was 14 or 15 years old, Cretan Chaos, Jason. Um, and he was a brilliant bass player because in America, they'd all, they had Fenders, they had guitar uh, Gibsons, whereas we were playing copies. You know, they had money in America, these kids. Um, and then, you know, he had to, he came back to Britain with us, did a short tour. We had a huge riot with the British movement at one of our concerts in Bedford, where 80 to 100 skinheads just broke up the whole us, the police, the whole concert got wiped out. It was an organized bust on us. Bedford yeah. was the center of the British movement. So we were asking for it to play there, you might say. But we didn't expect it to be that bad. It was awful. Um, so he left. That freaked him out because, yeah, yeah, you don't get that happen in America. You probably had it, the riots in Washington. That's the closest they've got, the Proud Boys or something. You know? So he went back and then we took on someone called Lol, who was yeah. another girl who was in our – she played for another band in Luton. So she toured with us for a while. But she never wanted to be permanent. I mean, she was in a locked in a van with – Four other guys with, you know, stinky feet, dirty clothes, uh, snoring. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an idyllic existence for her, but I liked her a lot, actually. No, uh, she was a sweet thing. She passed away, actually, a couple of years ago. We lived ago. in a van. We lived in a van and a transit. And then I was peeing. Eddie won't like this story, but I was taking a pee in Northampton, uh, uh, one of our gigs, and Eddie was the other end of the urinal. And he said... He's not why we're peeing. When we turn around, I said, oh, I'm a bass player. You're still looking for a bass player? I said, yeah. Yeah, come and try out. So Eddie came down about two weeks later to Luton, and he was just incredible. It's what we'd always been looking for, really. 
especially for me because he had a real funk to his bass play and real presence like in your face yes um and uh yes yeah, so we took eddie on and it was as simple as that so we went through bass players but apart from that well spawn spawn joined early on of course three became four and then we stayed at four you know um and you know they always left my guitar behind uh, or the amp behind so whenever i got somewhere oh great oh where's the amp it had been left behind of course it was because they knew i was a crap guitarist one allow me to play one finger keyboards for a minute but that was pretentious twaddle so so yeah so we pretty well stayed a four piece and i've always liked trios i've loved trios so i like the idea of keeping the band compact because there's less communication needs to go on to really make it work yes there you go hendrix cream all those classics. Groundhogs. Oh. I love the Groundhogs. Do you know the Groundhogs? Yes. There you go. Yeah. The Groundhogs. T- Tony McPhee passed away recently, unfortunately. Yeah. Brilliant, Tony McPhee. So, when was the next time you went in the studio? What was the next kind of recording session? The next recording session after Ram and Only, we did a B side for uh, uh, Twist in the Tail. What was the B side for, Spawn? Is it sexual? Uh, sexual, which was on the album, yeah. but Twist in the Tail, which wasn't. Yeah, and that so was a that... political sort of rant at the time, wasn't it? And yeah. but sex, sexual is an interesting track. I said to someone the other week, said to me, um, somebody's making a short film on UKDK. Decided to make the short film, so I met him the other day, um, and uh, he was. He said to me, "Sexual, it's about the whole trans debate, isn't it?" I said, "Well, it's not about the debate, but the lyrics were very much." I'd read somewhere about this experimentation where they were, you know, they were replacing the sexual organs of a man with a woman's uh, sexual organs. It was like a transplant, like a gluon, mm. and vice vice versa. Um, and you know, it, it literally said some people are born uh, neither sex. Some people are born sort of believing they should be the other sex. And it was, I read it just. It was a. It's actually. In, I was just learning German at the time. I read it in a German. I think it's Tipple City, one of the Berlin magazines. And it was very much, I just thought how shocking that would be to the world. So sexual was, um, i trying to remember the lyrics. Uh, oh, yeah. And they were saying about how your sexuality gives you a purpose in life, you know. Uh, it wasn't that phrase because it was in clunky German. But, you know, and the, the lines were something like, in confusion, a purpose in life, the choice of problem, a husband for a wife. Um, hormones in demand. Uh, um, oh, shit. I can't remember those. Uh, something about hormones in demand because these are hormonal because you could get the the transplant but you need the hormone change as well to make sure that they were fed what they need to be fed um and if if i can remember the lyrics uh, it was very much about that about that you know we're going to a world where you could actually choose what sexuality you want to be and at, at the end it was like there was a mary whitehouse character at the time that was against any any sex on tv or any discussion of sex um you know, and I mentioned her in the song somewhere about her and her knickers in the air or something. Because oh my <laughs> god, how this would shock people! It would have shocked my parents, who were very easygoing. You know, it would shock, you know, the establishment if suddenly people could say, "I want to be a boy," and you transition. Um, I didn't know the word transition at the time. I remember trying to think of what the word would be where you change one sex to the other. Anyway, have a look at the lyrics of that song. I will. It, yes, it was definitely, definitely about. This whole the the trans world right now, and it's you know that in itself I find hard because people people ask me what are your thoughts on that, and I'm like I don't know, I don't have concrete thoughts on it, especially about the age of being able to transition and stuff. You know, I'm very aware that as gay people were in the 80s when we were you know fighting against homophobia, 
behavior. You know, trans people need protecting at the moment because they're very vulnerable. And in that sense, I think we need to protect. There needs to be less aggressiveness around the debate. But I don't, I don't. And I think now I've learned you get to an age where, not an age, you get to a point of wisdom where you don't have to have an answer for everything. You just got to listen more. This is true. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. It's like sort of combination of I had, I don't know the debate and I'm not sure if I'm that interested. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, well, that's debate, right. But there's yeah. other debates that I just think. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even what you just said now, if that was on TV, you would be, you're cancelled, you know. It's so hard to, you've got to be, you know, it means either people aren't going to talk because of the consequence. Yes. Or they're going to take a side very quickly without really thinking it through. And, and you know, I've, I said, because I work with a couple of charities and one of them, I said the other people the, the other day, um, they've taken the piss out of my age. And um, I said to the yeah, young people, stop thinking about yourself. Start properly thinking about the world around you, other things around you, not you, but everything else. Oh, I got booed. <laughs> <laughs> this was a friendly debate. It wasn't, you know, any soapbox and high park country, but it was like, yeah, it was interesting because, um, you know, we, we've got to a place, like Spawn said, that seems very toxic. How the hell did we get here when, you know, literally at the end of the 70s, we really thought, you know, things were going to change. Um, started by the punk movement, you know, taken on by people that came out of it. You saw so many TV producers, film directors, obviously musicians had come from around that punk movement uh, with messages, you know, for the world. But then they started to write about message in the bottle, you know. So, again, it went into commercialism and the button never arrived you know <laughs> yes this is true so then what's what's your next period of the band because you bring out a cassette a live recording don't you they called something like is it celebration um spun well before we did that we uh the last thing we did was task force was floating off towards argentina we were in the studio recording um rising from the dread the uh, four track ep which mm. uh, really was our last great um uh, proper per se recording you know it was uh four tracks the after men- whatever i mentioned before there was a track called werewolf on it It was about eight to ten minutes long i can't remember exactly how long it was but ten of the table had the stuff on the beginning i think it was yeah. ten or eleven with all the ground and the stuff at the beginning that was controversial wasn't it because penny was um Penny Rimbold, that is from Crass. He was kind of funding it, wasn't he? That, that was going to yeah. be Corpus Christi Records, and it was going to be the first records on his new label. And the, the, the grounding for the new label was that Crass were an Anaco punk rock band, and they had the Crass records, obviously. But this was a new uh, label which was going to spotlight the new generation of uh uh, protest, if you like, and they saw us as being at the spearhead of that. So uh, we were given the uh, task of delivering the first single for them. So the uh, the uh, catalogue number for the uh, record that actually came out in the end was Christ, it's number one. Um, <laughs> so Classic. we did four tracks for that, which was Werewolf, Testament, Rising from the Dread, and Jerusalem over the White Cliffs of Dover. And as we were recording them, Tanny in the corner of the studio was showing the flag waving and the ships mm-hmm. all leaving for Argentina you know, and for the war ahead. And it was a real sort of pivotal moment. I, I don't, you know, it did kind of mould the backgrounds to our recording there, didn't it? Yeah. 
It did, yeah. It was live on telly. And it, you couldn't. We took took it in, and I think definitely the record Jerusalem and Testament. You know, there was sort of aggressive sounding moments of the record, more from Spawn and Eddie and Steve than me. Um, that was. I th- I th- was it? Was it, was it also around that time? Was it seven eighty two when we had that embassy seed where the SAS and it was very spectacular. Oh, the Iranian. Yes, was that around 82, yeah. 83? Because that was kind of another yeah. patriotic moment where we killed the bad guys. Yeah. It felt like it was, yeah. Um, it was on jingoism, wasn't it? It was really yeah. high, flag-waving jingoism. It, yes, yeah. it, was, it was tricky. It was tricky. It was so far away from our beliefs, you know, that was the problem. It was so far away. Um, you know... We didn't really need a cheering section to validate our moral compass at the time. You know, we just we did what we thought was right. Um, but there was a huge cheering section for the opposition, it seemed. You know, I remember going to um, the uh, National Front March in South London and the police being so hostile to the protesters and the National Front were just walking through, <laughs> like guarded by the police. They were hammering hell out of everybody around it's like oh my god you know we it just it seemed well it seems a little bit like it is at the moment um but at least we hate to use the word weaponized but we had this platform that we thought would perhaps try and change the world you know um i.e music punk um so we did have hope we never lost lost hope in things but it's it's yeah I don't know it it it, it was it it I thought uh, when I got in late twenties and thirties how naive it all was you know what we were doing but now I look at it and I don't think it was I think it was just very honest and authentic um, and you know I think I think one of the one of the things we weren't aware of we we saw like the I suppose the oppositions the right wings and the Thatchers. We saw them as being these, you know, confident models of knowing exactly where they would go in. They had the flag behind them, that history behind them, Churchill quotes, all this stuff. And of course, you eventually realise that it's a it's a sign of great inner, inner insecurity when you're hostile to the unfamiliar. And that's what they were. You know, they're very insecure. They're worried their world was being taken away by these Pakistanis and Indians and you know uh, uh, Jamaicans and you know working class types and miners and all these things and um and actually they they were we were we were a threat to them albeit we weren't probably popping up i don't mean us as a band i mean the collective the aggregate of all of us that felt that they were wrong yes this is true i know i was just thinking of those kind of moments like you know viv anderson playing for england or you know the yeah. three plays yeah. for west brom you know this was kind of like can they, you know, pick John Barnes? I mean, the hatred that everyone got for just appearing um, yeah. was amazing. Oh, Liverpool. Luton played Liverpool and up there. And Ricky Hill and Brian Steen, the bananas were thrown on the pitch by Liverpool fans. It was shocking. I think at this point, you probably need to come out with what football team you support, David. Because you, you seem <laughs> to be a little bit savvy on football. And you've, you know, again, this is the interviewee, interview and the interviewer. <laughs> Well, it's a it's a it's a little bit embarrassing, but my first love because it was one of those things. I was growing up in the Ipswich areas. Everyone liked Ipswich, but everyone talked about Man United and George Best. So I loved you know George Best, but unfortunately, I was too young to realise that Man United were dreadful and they got relegated. But because that was my first first bat, you know. 
team. I supported them for that period until about the mid 80s. Then I hated football for a while. And then, you know, Eric Cantona and Ferguson appear and and I've become kind of fascinated, but I've kind of now become a bit more bored of it. But there was a kind of the 70s and early 80s was just, you know, a glorious time for football, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was. No, I can take a Man United. I can take anything. Uh, yeah, but I it mean, was it was that kind. Of, I don't know when you were growing up, just hearing about George Best and you know this kind of yeah. excitement. Oh, he's a genius. I love mm. George Best. You know, as a footballer, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. And, and of course, his quotes, his quotes about wasting money in that it's sort of <laughs> so nihilistic. They're brilliant. Yeah. yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, it's uh, sorry. Back to what I'm thinking. I think it's always difficult to escape from youth. We all think we've still got it going on, and we're connected to it. But if I'm honest, I think youth is so far away from where I am now. Uh, even being fit and healthy, still playing football or tennis or cricket, whatever, whatever, ending with a ball. But those days, you know, we are very disconnected from now. Um, and that's why it's quite interesting. People like Kathy, Mick Mercer, you know, who were there are writing books now. Um, you know, and some of the journalists in the broadsheets as well came from that era um because this is their language you know they can they can crystallize feelings or articulate you know what it might have been like for those that weren't there or even for us that were there and weren't thinking more than what was in front of our nose you know yes um but it's in, yeah. yeah but it's interesting because it's only been very recently in the last 5 years that that 80s slightly alternative yeah scene has been documented you know you had that king rocker didn't you Stuart lee doing the f- film on the nightingales there was a film about a band called rima rima that only made oh, one EP. Yeah. Um, yeah. so there's a film rima, called rima. On, on rima rima now that's just Is it really yes wow. I'll, I'll, I'll send, I'll send you pardon marco, marco was it yeah, and gary marco. and gary from who went into renegade soundwave and um really? So, uh, yeah, and the other members, that was the first band on 4AD Records and the other members yeah. all went into various other bands on 4AD. But, yeah, and and Dorothy Max Pryor, who was the drummer, who was also just did a book herself. Um, so that do- that whole world is being documented quite, you know, mm. left, right and centre, as as with Kathy and then John Robb's book on goth, which, you know, and... and which the one we- we're not in, everyone. I met, I met John Robb. <laughs> I met him at the Six Music Fest in Manchester. And he said, oh, I've done a book on goth. I'm like, oh, and you're not in it <laughs> or something. I'm like, I just said, I don't care. You know, well, and anyway, he wanted to talk about it more. So because um, I've always sort of got on with him. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, you didn't invent goth. It was, you know, Lou Reed or something, blah, blah, blah. And, and he went on about something. I said, I don't, I don't give a damn. <laughs> I don't give a damn, you know. <laughs> George Ford invented the motor car. I drive my car every day and I, I don't think about George Ford. You know, I just get in the car and drive it. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was quite quite a funny moment. And I didn't know about the book, but then suddenly from all directions, people are saying, oh my goodness, he's reinvented history or something, or he must have something against you, you know. Um, but hey, journalists have always had stuff against us, you know. Yes, well, <laughs> so, anyway, well, Kathy's on, on your side, so there you go. Yeah, well, I like Kathy. I like John as well, you know. I don't have to be in his book to not no. to like him or not like him, you know. So what happens with the band in 83, 84 then? Do you, is this your kind of Ziggy Stardust moment? Yeah, I think so. We was probably more popular than we'd ever been, obviously. We were doing serious numbers across Europe. Uh, a lot of interest, you know, the album come out in Japan. But a lot of interest to go and tour forever. And I think, you know, because like I say, we're, we're very much four individuals and 
it, we didn't really, we just said, you know what, we're in Germany one day and we said, there's a lot of bands coming through in a similar vein, to, a similar lane to us, not musically necessarily, but a similar vein. Uh, and they've been playing with us, you know, uh, all over. Um, I mean, we did one gig at the Zigzag Club with Southern Death Cult, Dance Society, Sex Gang Children, Play Dead. Uh, perhaps it was two gigs. We did two. I can't remember Spawn can remember these things. All these yeah. bands were coming through. And we sort of said, you know what? You know, we shouldn't have done it now. Think about it. We should have just made another bloody record and carried on. But we just sort of, you know, we were young and and um, definitely not foolish. Uh, we weren't fools, but we just, we'd never been in it to have a career. We was in it because we liked making music and, and we had things to say. So we just sort of said, okay, that's it. And I think Spawn was the one, probably most sensible. We questioned that, said we should probably carry on. But we didn't. And that was it. So in 83, we did two gigs at Clubfoot around Christmas time in Clarendon, of which that night celebration cassette is one of them. And they were very special shows, I think, uh, for us because we did them without really thinking about what's happening tomorrow. We just did them and that was it. And it was gone. Yeah. Yes. Pretty fair approximation. We, uh, well, we, the two shows were absolutely cra- uh, packed. Well, the queues went round the block and, and had to turn quite a lot of people away, apparently. Mm. Uh, and the first show, John Loder hired in a uh, huge multi-track caravan and went absolutely apeshit trying to record it, mic and everything up separately. And then the second show we did, he stuck up a a Sonny Walkman with two microphones and that captured the essence of that show it's one of the best live tapes that we've done actually wasn't mm. it? Yes. So we that I didn't know it recorded on multi-track that's new to me but yeah that yeah, must exist yeah. somewhere then does it well I would have thought it does somewhere yeah, yeah. but mm. we, we had to listen to it and we uh, like mm, not sure about it the performance on the second night was much better anyway mm. it was so emotional everybody was in tears in the audience they were yeah bloody hell the Grizz the sound engineer was in tears there was mm. an explosion of emotions <laughs> it, yeah and it, comes it out, was it yeah. It did all come out, yeah, but we didn't really think about it. Because all I can remember was there was a big chandelier hanging down in the ballroom, and I thought, I wonder if I can actually get that if I jump high enough. So I ran across the stage in the middle of a song, and I got up there, and I was on this chandelier with no idea how to get down. <laughs> I was going back and forth, and apparently, because I could notice, it was getting longer and longer and longer and nearer to the audience. And I still don't know how I got down, but somehow I ended up back on stage. I think something to do with some of the audience uh, managed to sort of get get me out of this awkward situation um and back on stage but uh anyway so that was the end of it but there is a cassette of it and of course cassettes never really tell the story no. i've got a video of it somewhere a vhs of it that john loder sent me many years ago uh which i've never watched but that's somewhere yes um i don't know which one first or second one but and that was it really and then you know we went off and did a few things and then uh we went off and did musical things after that and non-musical things and then quite a few years later, um, we got together uh, and made New Hope for the Dead, an album, which, um, you know, it's sort of, uh, I can't remember how it came together. I think it was because we got asked to do some shows in Luton. We did a show in Luton, that's right. 
Uh, well, I was I was at a, a show because Spawn had kept the community together, and he was doing once or twice a year, whatever it was, he was doing these DK community things where a lot of the old uh, followers fans would get together and just have a night a night out, you know. Anyway, he invited me to one of these things. I went to it. Next thing I know, it's like get up on stage, you're singing. We're going to do a couple of numbers. Oh my god! I haven't sung since then. I've been songwriting still. Um, obviously, uh, mainly in America, in the sort of black music world. Um, so I got up on stage and they played a couple of songs, and I couldn't remember the lyrics. It was so embarrassing. It's that nightmare where I don't know if you've ever had it, where you're something you can do really well, or, or you can do, and then when it comes to it, nothing comes out your mouth, <laughs> or you're being chased and your legs don't don't move. Yes. You know? Um, so I stand on stage and they're playing these songs and I couldn't remember the lyrics because I really hadn't thought about it all those years, you know. And actually, I went home and told the story to, I had, you know, two children, probably, I don't know, six and eight they were at the time. And I told the story and they said, Dad, were you in a band? And not actually older than that. They were eight and 12 or something. Were you in a band? I said, yeah, I was years ago. They'd never heard of it. You know, I'd never mentioned it. I'd never even thought about it. And then from that, we got asked to do a few more shows and then we did a few more shows and a lot of people turned up, a lot of young people turned up. The first one I think was in Milan, wasn't it, Spawn? Yeah, oh my goodness, we were that Italians. Yeah. It seemed like the, all these young people that could have only been like 21, 22 years old and yeah. they're all singing along to all our lyrics. It's like, wow. <laughs> and then, and I, an ID magazine was there, like interviewing all these young kids about, you know, the fashions of goth and stuff and we were like, I think I was wearing a football shirt, you know, because it was hot and comfortable. Um, and it was funny because we were suddenly um, suddenly back back on the road again, you know. And we went back and we toured Italy and we did a, a show in Paris where, again, all the, the police have smashed up our last show in Paris um, with about 2,000 people, audience present. And the police, riot police, came walking through the show before we went on stage. And, you know, whatever, 30 years difference, but it felt like, yeah, getting back on the horse we hadn't really been away too long it was quite weird time sort of dissipated yeah um and um and we made another record new hope for the dead which i think you know there's a couple of tracks on there that were written in haste in the studio but the rest of it was yeah i think it's probably as good as the first record in in many ways um still got a bit of life in it and i think you know there's still another probably 20 songs kicking around that we've haven't recorded or released or whatever but uh perhaps one day is it the case that the band is sort of semi-hibernating but potentially there for the odd live date or session you know getting back in the studio spawn <laughs> I, don't, I don't i've thought about it we've learned to say never say never so um yeah the last things we did we played in luton and uh two big gigs in Europe in 2019. Um, There's obvious difficulties these days with playing in Europe on our kind of level because we're not the Rolling Stones. Um, We can't hire an army of people to sort out all the paperwork. And there's also an issue for the would-be promoters out there who all of a sudden have to bulk up double the amount to get us across. Yes. I think we could do it though. I think those things can be overcome. Obviously, that's yeah. the business I'm in. So if we can't do it, it's a poor show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think it's just just a fact. Yeah, Eddie's living in Birmingham. Spawn's living in Wales. You know, I'm living in Labour Grove. Um, Ray's living in Oxford. Sheer. 
so we're so again it's we're not down the pub together and like let's get together every rehearsal it, it takes planning you know um yes. so yeah it, it could happen you know i think we'd only do it if we had something to say um and regardless of a, uh, any ears to listen using the clash lyric i think um we'd still do it you know we're not audience hunting so yes. you know never say never but you uh, see but a lot of bands pass. like Wasted Youth is is sort of out there doing their shows now, aren't they? And yeah, I know it's Rocco a slightly sent different... me a text. Rocco sent me a text a few months ago and said, um, "Hey, Abo, do you want to come to our show?" And I looked at it, it's Rocco, and I'm like, "Rocco, hold on," because he was doing a second-hand glasses stall on Port Villa Road, and I met him. He hasn't changed really about ten years ago, and he's still got my number. I get we exchange numbers. Let's meet up. I met with Billy Duffy when the cult played a secret gig in London. Uh, my mate was um, Vince Powers promoted it, so I went down there. I went backstage, and the bounce was like, "No way, no one's coming in." Blah blah blah. I'll like, oh, just tell him Abbo's here. And suddenly, like, Abbo, come on through. And I went through uh, with my mate um, Jim, and there was Billy and Gavin from a group called Under Two Flags back in the day. And for about an hour, we just spun a yarn. We had such a good laugh because when actually I finished with UK Decay. Um, I got together with Billy in Brixton and we started to write songs for, for a new group. Um, and Billy was good friends with Johnny Marr. So he said, oh, my mate's band's playing in London, doing their first London show in a couple of weeks' time. And should we, he, he said, do, do you want to support? So we supported the Smiths at the Le- uh, Electric Cinema in Brixton. Um, and there was Craig who was a well-known tour manager who unfortunately died in a car crash a couple of years ago. Myself, Billy, I think Gavin under two flags. Uh, was it um, Nigel Preston on drums? And we did a like a 20-minute jam of called Rubber Love. And we just jammed for 20 minutes, and we were the Smiths' first support band in London. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's, you know, the, we met them afterwards, and we hung out with them. It's very funny because... Um, I remember getting on really well with Morrissey. You know, we just had a real laugh. I can't remember what it was about. We were doing Irish jokes, I think it was, you know, but jokes about the English and Irish accent, reversing it. And um, Billy was chatting with with Johnny Marr, you know, and then now my sort of 27-year-old son, his favourite band is the Smiths. And he spends his life trying to convert me to become, you know, the biggest Smiths fan in the world. And I've never really connected with it until recently when I was reading someone's profile in one of the papers, I think it's a Guardian Observer. Well, I would say that. It's not the tele- Telegraph, but it could have been. I don't know. It was in one of those papers. And they said, my favourite line of poetry is, um, if I could die by your side, you know, being hit by the bus and stuff. Yeah. And I looked at it and I said, that's a beautiful lyric. And I saw it by Smith. I'm like, oh, my God. So now I've literally just started listening to the Smiths a couple of weeks ago, having been so close to them so long ago because they're Billy's mates, it was my mate's mate's band. So I wasn't, I didn't take him seriously, you know? Um, and, you know, I think his lyrics, and Smith's lyrics are beautiful. Um, and I've got over the sound of the voice. So you never know. You never know. You know, it's sitting, Smith's is uh, sitting next to, you know, Susan the Banshees and just about, you know, uh, 1,500 records away from once again, Bartley James Harvest. Yeah, so I've got a couple of records. Well, they, absolutely. Did you ever like Wishbone Ash? Did you ever go through that? Um... Yeah, I, 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 my sister liked them. I saw them on the Argus tour, which was their best record, I think, or Wishbone 4. Um, yes. Again, I took all these things in because um, I've been told to talk quietly. Um, 
I took these things in because, yeah, it, it was around me. So yeah. I, I listened to it and they played in St Albans, Dunstable, Friars Aylesbury used to be a venue we went to a lot, wasn't it, Spawn? Yeah, yeah. So they had everybody from Greenslade to, I saw Iggy Iggy there with Bowie on keyboards. I saw Bowie there on Hunky, well, just before he Hunky Dory came out. I've got a lovely recording of that if you want it. Um, live in Aylesbury, just on my cassette recorder. Um, yeah, so so we, I didn't, don't think, don't we turn down anything really. The only thing we didn't really like was, I suppose, the basic rollers, David Cassidy, Donny Osmond, you know, <laughs> you know, even bands like the Rubettes and stuff, you know, when we, it's it's the pop music of your childhood. So I've never been a big Beatles fan, I must admit. I'm more of a Stones fan, but I, now I realize I shouldn't really choose. But the Beatles still, I don't, I'm still not a huge fan. I like George Harrison's songs. I prefer McCartney's songs to Lennon. Anyway, that's about me. That's enough about me. Um, Wishbone Ash. Yes. Yeah. Um, the King King Will Come. Yes, The King Will Come. It's a classic, isn't it? Anyway, look, this has been... But I was just going to say, you, you, apart from your... You've always had a life in music, though, haven't you? You've you've had these huge chapters, starting record labels, managing mm. tours. I mean, you know, music has just totally consumed you for 40-odd years. So is it the case you're still very much involved in the that business world of it? Yeah, yeah. I like to think the business through the music. Uh, I do the business, obviously, but it's the music that I love. Um, in fact, very proudly now managing a soul singer from Luton <laughs> called Charisse, uh, who, you know, her, you know, from where I, she grew up about a uh, half a mile from where I grew up. And we have a lot in common. You know, she's come through her, her mum's Jamaican, a local labour um, politician um you know so her views probably align with mine anyway but it's interesting you know so i'm watching her sort of grow um and wishing that we'd have had someone that could have stood beside us and navigate this around some of the obstacles of the business side of the world you know um but yeah it's a classic case of a i remember dad um god bless him um he wasn't particularly musical and I remember him saying to me, because, you know, obviously he was going out to work and I was getting my, you know, two quid a week pocket money. And I'd save up and just buy LPs or singles. And I remember him saying to me, sitting around listening to this music all day. Why you, it's never going to do you any good. Why don't you go and <laughs> learn a trade, you know? <laughs> and it was lovely when I actually first made, first band I managed a group called EMF. And we had a huge hit, unbelievable. And I sent him a mum mum around America on a Wallace Arnold tour. One of those old biddy sort of coach tours, you know. Yeah. And he still, he kept saying to me, "How do you afford this? Where's the money come from?" And then, you know, I used to manage Westminster Abbey Choir, produce their records. Um, and him, my mum came to the Abbey, and he was there, and there was speeches at the end, taking everybody in. I got thanked um, by the dean of, of Westminster, and my dad was—he just thought it was imposter syndrome. He thought something was wrong here. <laughs> and of course it all goes back to listening to you know Hawkwind, Black Sabbath, Bob Marley, Stevie Wonder is probably my favourite arts of all time, him and Bob. Um and Dead Moon. I'm a big fan of Dead Moon. Do you know Dead Moon? No. Uh great band. Yeah. Yeah, I think he may have just died. Um oh god, that's the saying of the night, isn't it? Um but the music lives on Dead Moon, what a band. And they're a band I discovered probably ten or twelve years ago. I've got everything by it, like 10 or 12 albums on vinyl, you know, obviously got the CD versions. Dead Moon, 
brilliant. Really and, and I'm still discovering things that, you know, I have a life which is my day job, which is actually 24 7, seven days a week, because a lot of the artists, it's the music is 10%, the other 90% is getting them their personalities through life, because obviously they're perhaps a bit more sensitive than most of us with a lot of challenges uh, and AI hanging over us at the moment. Um, but you know, it's it's still buying records and books is 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 the my favourite pastime. Yeah, my wife likes climbing mountains. She wants to go. We went to Everest a few years ago, and did the base camp thing. She wants to climb mountains, and I want to tour the libraries and bars of Bohemia. But we still get on, and we're still together. <laughs> and she has built those lovely shelves behind me for my records. Well, that's um, very good. Well, it was like yeah. um, I think John Waters once said. About John Peel, if he ever reaches puberty, we're in trouble, you know, which is a nice, it's a nice thing, isn't it? I think to keep that hunger. But I know David Bowie and Lemmy, who were born in the same year, both mm. said, you know, it was the music when you were 16 that stays with you, which was Little Richard, Eddie yeah. Cochran, Buddy Holly. Yeah. You can't, you can't replace that 16 year old brain, but that's the music yeah. that is going to always be with you. Brain, isn't it? Yeah. Ugly Yes. Dear old Lemmy, we mm. loved him. But I, anyway. I still think there's really, really good music out there at the moment. You know, I still find a lot. I took an email with Nigel House from Rough Trade Shop today. He knows whenever I see him, any of his shops in the world, he's probably going to be a hundred dollars better off by the time I leave. You know. Um, yes. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Right. Look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. So I recommend that. So you can you can yeah. read a little bit in it. So she's got a, quite a nice chapter for you. There you go. Oh, the okay. <laughs> that's funny all right and um, yeah anyway look thank you and i'll send you the link if you want and um yeah. you can always put it on your social media platform sites that'll be amazing okay sure you got it's it been, Thanks, it's been great thank you ever so much i'll good say nice. good night and um i see you spam see you yes good night thank you good night everyone right. bye-bye all right there you go i know i love leaving those last bits in because frankly mr shankly they're quite exciting they make me smile and it does uh in this occasion, on this occasion, it does sound like the Waltons, really. Anyway, a massive thank you to two of the members of UK Decay, that's Abbo and Spawn. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Yes, indeed. Also, these have, these interviews have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>